0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com.
1: Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to the Musicians Guild Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Choi, and I thank you for being here. So here we are, episode number one, my first full-length episode. I've been busy getting this one together, lining up new guests, doing like promo spots for the network that I needed to do. And I got to say, I completely underestimated how much work this would be. Like a true idiot, I was thinking to myself, I write songs, I make records, I produce. How hard can putting together a podcast be? It's some dialogue. You got some music. You stitch it together here and there. But how wrong I was, and I acknowledge that I didn't appreciate what goes into this, and I owe an apology to the whole of podcasting uh, for not for not appreciating that more. So that was the swift punch to the nose that I needed. But the pain is kind of exacerbated by my particularly annoying way of being creative, which is to oftentimes fall into. I guess this cycle of overanalyzing totally ridiculous details that don't actually affect the end product, but somehow I convince myself that they do. And I know I'm not unique in that way. I know that a lot of people experience this, especially creatives, and I take comfort in that. It's just so easy to slip into this cycle of overanalyzing ridiculously short uh, periods of time that are generally only relevant to hummingbirds, bacteria, or maybe particle physicists. So it's something I'm working on. Been working on it for like 17 years, but I'll uh, continue to keep putting work into it. You wouldn't know it if I wasn't going to tell you about it, but I just had to stop because I was taking a sip of my coffee, which is now sadly decaf. Uh, That's a story I'll save for another time, but... As I was taking a sip of my coffee, it went down the wrong pipe, and as I was about to cough, I tried to hold it in, which was a total idiot move because all I ended up doing was creating a perfect spray nozzle with my lips to shoot coffee all over my computer and the table. And as I was cleaning it up, they both complained that it was decaf as well. Kind of makes me laugh, though, to think that the intelligent protocol would have been to (laughs) just lean down, face the floor, and just cough it all onto the ground. But that would have been much better than what I just did. I basically did that move that kind of uninspired dudes on stage will do where they take a sip of water and spray it into the air or over the crowd. If you're listening to this and that's your thing, I'm sorry. Don't be offended. Uh, I'm sure you have plenty of other stees around that, but come on, you know what that is. We all know what that is. And does anybody even really get excited by that move on stage anymore? I don't know. Don't listen to me. No one needs to listen to the guy who jumps around stage like a grasshopper or a cricket on fire about what's cool or not cool to do on stage. So, that was just uh, me talking shit. <laughs> okay. Back to the podcast now. I plan on doing episodes that will be separate of the dialogue conversation full-length format, Uh, I think I'm going to call them the Musician's Digest where I'll be discussing one specific aspect of something, whether it's picking out an album or a song, maybe even like a guitar tone or a snare sound or recording quality. It'll just be like an appendix, but not to an episode. It'll be an appendix to the podcast as a whole. Um, So you can look out for that. Okay, so that's enough of that jabber, let's move on to some babbling, but this babbling will have more purpose because it is to introduce today's guest, Mr. Matthew Embry. As many of you may know, uh, Matt and I play in Rx Bandits together. I also tour with him in The Sound of Animals Fighting. He's also in Dispatch, and he's done so many other projects just because he's such a prolific, hardworking musician and definitely one of the greatest guitar players that I know. Getting to be in a band with him, write music together, and have him push my abilities on the guitar has been such an important thing in my life, and I'll forever be grateful. Um, Any kind of ability that I might have on the guitar beyond what just naturally basically came to me, I personally owe mostly to Matt, just because he's so excellent at the guitar. I mean, he's an excellent musician, but he is uh, a truly gifted guitarist, you know, and vocalist too. He's a man of many talents, and he was definitely put on this earth to make music. I first met Matt and the other guys in RX in 1999. I was living in Santa Cruz in a house with a few other people, And at that time, I was touring with Mike Park in Japan and Europe. I was also touring playing organ for a couple members of the specials. And uh, I was also touring with a band from Santa Cruz called Slow Gherkin, which is how I met Matt and the guys in RX. Um, We had a house that a lot of bands stayed at. Uh, Everybody from the Siren 6 to MU-330. The Alkaline Trio stayed at our house uh, one of their first trips to California uh, a few different times. And on one of those trips, they shot a video uh, for a hopeless VHS video comp uh, in my backyard. We even had uh, the Blood Brothers there for a week when their van broke down. Just like so many, you know, bands from that era. And it was really cool. So Phil, uh, who was in Slow Gherkin, called me one night. And said that their friends and RX Bandits had played a show at the Cactus Club in San Jose, California. And they needed a place to stay. Uh, so he asked if they could stay at my house. And, you know, that was the thing to do then. We all stayed at people's houses. And if you could find another band or musician in a city uh, that you could stay at, that was an extra score. Because you you knew that they knew what was up. And it would most likely be a cool setup. So I said, yeah. And they came over. We bonded. I had a Joan of Arc poster in my room, along with a few other J-Tree Records posters because I was really into that stuff. And, you know, we discussed our love for Fugazi, Uh, their bass player at the time, introduced me to No Knife and played me Fire in the City of the Automatons for the first time and where I had my mind blown. But eventually that led to me joining Rx a year and a half later. And since then, we've just done a bunch of shit. I hate that term, the rest is history, but even this is becoming history as it comes out of my mouth. In the beginning, uh, I think Matt and I established ourselves with this polarity where we created a lot of energy and tension uh, by pulling in two different directions. and I think you can hear that in our music. But after time, going through so many experiences, so many failures and so many triumphs, the center of our Venn diagram started to grow and it continues to grow. And although Matt and I are very different, separate people, the center of our Venn diagram is quite large now, both through experience and, you know perspective. I'm very lucky to have been in a band with Matt for 20 years now. He's such a talented guy, an amazing thinker, and I simply would not be the musician I am today uh, without him. So before this babbling turns into rambling, here's my conversation with Matthew Embry. Thanks for coming here to be on the show, man. You bet, buddy. It's funny to think that um, 19 years ago, on this day, we woke up together at a Days Inn in New Haven, Connecticut, the morning after we had shot the Analog Boy music video at WWF Studios the night before.
0: Wow, I didn't even realize uh, it's was, was September 11 today.
1: I remember that because... The the previous night, uh, September 10th, 2001, Rich Balling was driving the van back to the hotel and we were so tired from having an early call time for that video shoot and we were just so dust that he drove most of the way back to the hotel with the parking brake on and it started smoking and we pulled over <laughs> and the van was totally smoking and then he's like, oh, I realized. And then you know we just did our normal uh, hotel yeah. thing and went to sleep and then woke up and yeah. Yeah, it's freaking crazy.
0: Man, I can't believe how you can remember
1: stuff like that. That's amazing. I mean, those kind of things are just so memorable that it's hard to forget them, to be honest. Like, watching it on TV, looking out the window, and I'm not exaggerating or making this up, literally looking out the window of the hotel to see the smoke with my own two eyes rising from New York City, like, a few miles away. And, yeah. Do you remember who we were on tour with?
0: Um, I'm pretty sure we were on tour with that was September tour, yeah. That was your first tour, yeah, with us, right? Yeah, yeah. We we're on tour with Newfound Glory,
1: and I don't remember who else. Well, that was right before we started the NFG tour, actually. That tour oh, we were right. on, we, we, we were the with Exit, right? No, we oh, were shit. with Strike Finch two. on their first tour, we were with Alistair, and we were with the starting, starting line. line, yes. Yeah. And upon uh, that event happening, Finch drove straight home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pretty sure the starting line went home too, but Alistair and us were left at that small bar in Connecticut across the street from that graveyard.
0: Yes. Remember oh, I, I remember that. Because vividly. we were
1: like, well, we're not three or four hours from home. We're like <laughs> pretty much as far as you can get from our home while still being on this continent, you know? Yeah, I, I remember that vividly, that show. Uh,
0: and that graveyard. It was super eerie. And I remember we we talked about it as a band for a minute like what we should do. Should we call it because I think I think we played the next day. I think it was the 12th, right? I think we had the 11th off or was the show on the 11th?
1: I think the show was on the 11th, dude.
0: That's right. Yeah, so I remember us talking about it and I'm pretty sure we came to the the uh, consensus that it would be a better look to, to play instead of not playing because of the people who had already paid to get in. And like, instead of just like everyone being bummed, you know, maybe you know, brighten the mood a little bit by playing some music, like offer a little bit of distraction
1: from it. But I remember the show was weird. Well, so weird. We, we, Held up our duty, and we did honor those three people that paid. Yes we, show, so. yes, we did. Yes, we did. Not our strongest performance, though, I'd have to say. Um, we may have been pretty hammered, all of us. I mean, that's a lot of stress to deal with. Yeah. I mean, it, at that age, I feel like we feel like having toured for a couple of years, like we're vets. Because when you're like 21, two years feels like a long time of doing anything. Oh, for sure. And, at, and our age now, we, we scoff at that, but... At that point, we felt like we had tour handled, and then that happens. (laughs) It's just like, oh, man.
0: Yeah, that was wild. That was wild. I remember that morning, I remember just waking up for no reason, and this was back in the day where uh, we couldn't afford even more. We couldn't really afford hotels in general. We could not afford multiple rooms ever. So we would get one room, like we recorded that video, and then we had our one days in room, and I think it w- that was when Johnny was playing with us, right? Johnny was playing bass, yeah. yeah. And so Rando been...
1: Commando was with us. Too.
0: Oh, Rando was with? No, I don't think Rando no, was with us there, yet. Yet. Yeah, yeah, Rando right. there. No, he wasn't there. Yeah, Rando wasn't there until the the next tour. Yeah. Um, oh, that guy, love that guy. Shout out to Rando Commando, wherever you are in the world. Real name Kurt, Louisville. And there, there's that memory again, dude. Legit, picked him
1: up at a. Bus bus stop in Florida. Yeah, and we dropped him off at a bus stop in Vegas. That's where we ended the tour. Yeah, which is just perfect.
0: Yeah, literally never saw him again.
1: He had his girlfriend with him at the time too. Remember she flew? Oh yeah, towards the end. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah, he was so nice and good kid. Blue fire on stage. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, but yeah, I remember waking up in the hotel room, and I think I got one of the beds that night. So I was sleeping next to like Johnny, I think, and he didn't wake up. And I think Rich was on the floor because it was like two guys on each bed. Yeah. And I think there was six of us total, five in the van, one traveling with us, doing merch. I can't remember who was doing merch, but it doesn't matter. I woke up, didn't know why, looked over, Rich was awake. He's looking at me like, why are we awake right now? And for some reason, he just like he's like, dude, I have like a weird feeling. You know, he turns on the TV, and it it was right after the first plane had hit, mm-hmm. and you and only one had hit. And I
1: remember we literally were watching it live when the second plane hit.
0: It was so oh.
1: heavy, dude. We we were all crowded around the TV in that hotel room, and on live television, watching as the building crumbled. So heavy, man. And we were so far from home. It's like what. It was crazy, you know? Um, obviously, besides us feeling stressed out and scared and out of place, the real tragedy is all the lives lost. But, um, Man, what a way to start the conversation, dude. Yeah. I mean, but <laughs> I, when I sat down with you here, I was just like thinking about around this time. I mean, okay, it's already 4 p.m. East Coast time. So 19 years ago, to the very minute, we were probably sitting in the van outside of that bar venue across from the cemetery having this discussion on what the hell to do. But, you know, as I remember, uh, I don't think we really had the money to get home, which is why we needed to stay playing that show. And we ended up doing a couple other shows. Like I remember this like uh, Vets Hall show in Valparaiso, Indiana. and Oh, yeah. That might have been also... That was the last one, right? Right, because we drove straight from Indiana home. Ah. Uh, was that also in those following days? Is that when we went to um, Poughkeepsie, New York? And is that when we met the exit for the first time, like a few days after that? I think so. I, I think feel like so. that is.
0: Yeah. I yeah. think so because it was the haunt, right?
1: Yeah. That, that venue? I wish I had that sticker somewhere on a guitar case for that venue. And I always said, I'm going to keep this sticker because this is the night we met, the exit. Shout out to Jeff, Ben, Gunner, our homies. Um, but now I, I think you might be right. The Chance. Oh, The Chance. Yeah. No, The Haunt. The Haunt? Is it The Chance? I don't know. Oh, people from upstate New York are listening to this right now going, <laughs> oh, come on, you guys. It's <laughs> definitely. And so please let us know. I'm sorry. We're, we're totally forgetting, but
0: yeah. yeah, I don't remember. We, we had such a tenuous relationship with upstate New York. Oh, man. You know, like it yeah. was, it, it would go back and forth from like really great show. And then next time we were there, there'd be like 50 people. Yeah. And we'd be <laughs> like, what are we doing wrong? Like Rochester, especially. What was that place we played? The, oh, we, we always played, we played the big room with Real Big Fish. And then we played that side room. And we literally we sold out the side room one time. The Next somebody. time we come back, there yeah, was like, like, like 80 people. We're like, what is happening?
1: Yeah, we sold out the side room. We came back with Portugal Demand supporting us. Yeah. And then there was like 80 people and we yeah. were like, what happened? I think it was uh, it was in Rochester. It was something street music call. I want to say yeah, it was sure. Water Street Music yeah, Hall. Yeah, that's it. And again, for all these people from these areas, we've played so many places. I know I'm fucking these names up, so we apologize. for We can't remember the exact <laughs> names. <laughs> you know...
0: Your brain can only hold so much. I'm at the point where my brain, now every new thing I learn, it erases an old thing. It's like a hard drive that's full that just does sure. auto-erase. Sure. And my erasure uh, locations are totally randomized. Like, it doesn't erase an older memory. It just erases a random memory forever. Yeah. So,
1: when we ourselves become random access memory.
0: There you go. So, yeah, that night, that was... Uh, Hmm. I think that's when we met the exit. Um, ben came up to me, asked me to use a guitar cap,
1: and he said I was an asshole to him. Oh yeah, you, he asked to use the amp because they had s- something had happened to their gear in a flood or something. Yeah, I basically. can't remember why. I thought he was
0: like making it up because he's too lazy, you know. Because <laughs> I didn't know him, and like you know, sometimes people are always trying to get out of like wheeling their own instrument, you know. Cabs in, or trying to use your your drum set at the time, and like totally
1: because we were such standoffish, like us against the world at that time. Yeah, that um, you gotta be kind of yeah. Well, it was just survival mode, right? I mean, at that point, we're all like
0: kind of out of our minds, you know? Oh, totally out of our minds. It was very surreal, and I think that you know we were supposed to go to Europe from there for our first Europe tour, my first Europe tour, not yours, but we were supposed to do that. And New Found Glory canceled all of it, understandably. And so we had to just, like, you know, make our way back across the country. and uh,
1: Yeah. You know. L.A. street sweeping for everybody uh, not in Southern California. Uh, that sound you just heard was the way our cities make money, the way our cities create revenue by fooling you into thinking they're providing you with the service cleaning the streets but really thinking of a way to try and ticket cars so they
0: just kind of move the the leaves around yeah <laughs> it kind of just moves them in somewhere else that's about it
1: right but then you know all the different properties hire their own cleaners which use these gas powered blowers to blow the leaves into another direction into right. another area for it to eventually, hopefully, make its way into the street to get moved to another area by the street suite. Sure. Fucking ridiculous, man. Yeah. Uh. Anyway, where were we? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, we were talking about the night we met the exit. And we got there because I started this whole thing off by, you know, bringing up that memory of where we were 19 years ago today, which has allowed us to, you know... That was like the, the catalyst that ultimately resulted in us being 40, having done a lot of other stuff since then, and now sitting in my small dining room in Long Beach, uh, recording this episode. Indeed. So, like I said, I really appreciate you being here just because it makes sense to kind of, through my visualization, um, I'm just trying to start at an inner ring with people that I'm the most familiar with a, because I'm trying to get more comfortable doing this and I'm not comfortable or experienced enough to just sit down with people I don't know and like feel confident in doing this yet. But you in essence, dude are such a huge part of my origin story. You weren't when I was, you know, 20, when we were 19, 20, first meeting, but Now, over the whole scope of my life, like, you are in the nucleus of my musical universe. Even though you and I aren't busy doing stuff together full-time, day in, day out anymore. Like, it doesn't change the fact that you are part of my nucleus, you know, in in my whole musical existence. So that's why I felt like I had to, you know, I wanted to and I had to start with you because it makes the most sense, you know.
0: Yeah, that's Rad man. Thank you.
1: Well, don't thank me yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. No thank you. <laughs> thank me. Thank taking me when this way.
1: episode uh turns out to be a, a decent one. Because uh yeah.
0: Hey, but, nothing little creative editing can't fix, you know.
1: That's true. You guys may not even hear this part. I may decide to edit it out. But You're cut. What I <laughs> what I do want to say is thank you for taking the time to come here and do this because you know. I know it's weird because we're supposed to be on like the same side of the mic or the camera all the time. And now it's me, Mm. your bro. Think about that. Putting you in that, in that context that I know that like you participate in your cooperative, but I know that you don't really, your heart like me is not into like sitting down and being like interviewed or being put on the spot or, you know what I mean? Shit like that. So.
0: Yeah. But this is different. This feels different. Good. You
1: know, I would hope so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was never very good at interviews. That's for sure. But this doesn't feel like an interview. I always thought it was the most fun thing to just to fuck with the interviewer. Whenever we had to do interviews. If I could do it all over again, I would have just been like, guys, here's what we're gonna do. Any interview we get, we're just gonna fuck with the guy.
1: Yeah, I mean that's definitely a better approach too when the interview is just horrible. The questions are just totally detached and like
0: Same thing every time they're just reading off a piece of paper, like they don't even know who you are, they don't care. You know. Yeah. Someone just told them to go interview you because you have a show there or whatever.
1: Right. And that would be fine if they didn't pretend like they were trying to be like having intimate knowledge of you and really into who you are. Yeah. But those two things in combination are like particularly annoying, right? It's like if you came in and said like, I'm sorry, dude, like I'm doing 10 of these today. You're one of 10. You're my seventh and I didn't eat lunch. I'm really (laughs) hungry. You know, it would be like, cool. We understand, you know, but. It
0: just gets all real with you.
1: Real quick. Yeah, that's ridiculous of me to think that I would people... respect it. Yeah, but I'm the dumbass. I'm trying to talk some shit like people in the entertainment industry are going to be all real and forthcoming. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, most of the time we're just interviewed by kids.
1: Yeah.
0: You a know, lot for... of the time they're probably really nervous.
1: That's true. It's not like we were, like, personable or affable.
0: No, especially, like, that's that's a tough job, going to interview a band in the middle of a tour. You know, they're like, because you become so insulated with your crew, especially when you're doing van tours, like before yeah. the bus, because you have no free time. You know, you're in the van six to eight hours a day, six to 12 hours a day, I guess, depending on the tour. And then, you know, you remember that feeling when you get to the venue. Yeah. Especially you get there and you have no time. Yeah. You got to load in. Oh, yeah. And you're so haggard. Yeah. You're so hagged. You know, you
1: probably, we probably just been smoking resin. Or whatever. Uh, yeah, we were you know? definitely not taking care of ourselves. No, so obviously our mood, along with our physical state, was just yeah, yeah. eating fast
0: food. Oh yeah, dehydrated, probably hungover <laughs> in my case, you know, off several things, and then you show up to the venue, you got to load in, and then you have you know like your hour to go find some, you know, some some sort of semblance of sustenance, and then uh, and then you just wait, you know. And you just sit backstage and wait or, if there's no backstage, have a Van Rager and just chill in the van. Yeah. And then some kid comes along and like, hey, I'm going to interview you. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. And you're like, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, in fairness to them, we weren't really an easy bunch too because where most people were willing to play ball and just be like, this is exposure there was like a lot about us that was like every single thing or at least me anyway, it was like, got to wrestle this into submission to make sure it represents us as accurately as possible. And you're like, they're thinking, well, this is going to be like one eighth of a page on page 37 of this magazine because we're dinosaurs that come from an era that still had print. Oh yeah. (laughs) And those interviews we were doing, we mostly going to print. And then we were part of obviously that transition into like online. Yeah. You know, so zines. And, yeah. Zines. Zines. I miss zines. I hope they make a comeback because like vinyl, I feel like people are going to continue to grow their hunger for something physical. And, and also what's growing right now is people finding crafts and stuff to do right. Mm. Like, the whole, mm. like, find something to make, make it your thing. Yeah. I hope that results in some zines. Because that too. would be really fucking cool. When I was in high school, and you were in high... When we were in high school, zines were the thing, dude. Oh, yeah. Because even if you were making them at Kinko's, which we were, it still gave you the power of publishing something, even if you were only able to make 10 copies and give them out to your friends at high school.
0: You know what I mean? Totally. So. And it was, it's a physical thing. You could hold it and feel it. And you spent... You use your hands, you know, it's a tangible thing that you sat there and, you know, in my case, like I never made a zine, but making flyers and, you know, you're like either taping stuff down or gluing it, you know, it's like you're like doing, you know, physical Photoshop and you're putting that time and effort, you know, and then you have it and you make copies. It's like a, it's something to be proud of. It's not just like internet detritus. Yeah. So, Yeah. you know. And, you know, you're physically handing it to someone. That was always cool. I remember making flyers, like, at high school to to pass out for, like, our first shows. And, you know, it gave you a reason to, like, walk up to the girl you never could talk to. Yeah. Or, like, you know, just anyone, anyone. Like, people, you know, I wasn't ever, like, a super outgoing person. So just, it was, like, something to sort of, like, hide behind, you know, and to... Something to push towards. Like, you're just... I don't care what this person thinks. I'm gonna hand them this flyer. Hope they come, and it's like I'm totally. you feel cool because you're the guy with the yeah. flyers, you know you're the guy like inviting people to shows and
1: already at that age, man, if you're handing out a flyer for something that you're involved with, that's like cool already. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's I was so blown away the first time I was shown how to make a flyer and how actually accessible it was. Because I would see them and I would be like, I don't know how they're made. That's cool, though. It'd be cool to have my band on a flyer. And then you're literally cut and pasting things you like, images and text and stuff from magazines, and you Xerox it and boom, you have your flyer.
0: Yep. Kinko's.
1: Like mind blown, you know? Mm-hmm. And,
0: and there was the Kinko's hack. Remember the Kinko's hack?
1: The counters with the counters? Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you drop them on the ground, they like yeah.
1: reset. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Sketchy little kids. Well, you guys were able to get away with more of that because you come from this populated place like SoCal, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When I was in Santa Rosa, like we had a 24-hour Kinko's downtown, but if you went past 8 or 9 p.m., you were like- You're the
0: only guy in there? One
1: or three people in yeah. there, you know what I mean? So, So they're going to know what's up. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's part of growing up privilege too, where I was just like I didn't worry about doing that kind of stuff. But I definitely hung with some kids that were making flyers and they would make like a hundred copies. They would just bang it on the ground or bang it on something and that was the move. Yeah. Because um I guess maybe a lot of you will be around our age, but for those of you who have no idea what the hell we're talking about. Um, Kinko's wasn't just like a FedEx center back in the day. It was like huge in the analog world because people could only fax stuff and we didn't have scanners and emails. So you had to like, if you had a presentation, you weren't sending an attachment, you were literally making 100, 200, 500 copies of something. So they had these little cartridges that you would stick in the copy machines and it literally counted how many you made and that's how they would charge you. So that sounds weird even describing it now. I even know. even to my own ears, that sounds like some ancient technology.
0: <laughs> I know, <it> kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. It's like twenty years ago, more, <laughs> almost. I guess twenty five years ago, dude. Uh, yeah, I I used to have to go to Kinkos because we didn't have a printer. So I used to have to type out. Like it sounds weird, but my mom had a computer and not a printer. I don't I don't know why. Maybe it was before we got a printer, or maybe we just never use it. We only use it for like early internet. I can't remember, but I used to have to take on a floppy disk, like my school, um, you know, whatever I was typing up for school, Mm -hmm. put it on a floppy disk, go to Kinko's and print it out there, hand them the floppy disk and (laughs) then they print you, you know, they print you your little, your little, uh, you know, history final or whatever.
1: And, oh
0: man, wild, wild times.
1: That was high-level advanced Kinko usage if you're actually taking a floppy disk there, dude. I spent
0: a lot of time at Kinkos
1: now that I'm reflecting. Where was the Kinkos you went to? It wasn't in Seal.
0: No. It was uh, in Fountain Valley, I think.
1: Man, so you had to get on the freeway to go to this Kinkos? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Or HB. mm, Probably more. No, you know what? It was at Huntington Beach. It was by um, Golden West uh, Community College. And I'm remembering now talking about the uh, Kinko's hack, that I got instant karma at one time. It was like probably five or six times into doing the Kinko's hack and getting like a thousand copies for, you know, the price of 30. And I pulled out completely safely onto the street and was immediately pulled over by a cop. And I got a ticket for an unsafe turn. But really what had happened was the cop was, like, flying down the street after this dude. The dude runs a red light, and then I just accidentally pulled in front of the cop, and so the guy got away. Mm. And so he just saltily gave me a ticket, and that was my first moving violation at right mm. old age of 16.
1: Yet another punk bitch move by them.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, had to go to traffic school, real traffic school.
1: Oh, it was like a legit traffic ticket.
0: Yeah. Hit on my permanent record. In the White Explorer? Yep. 1994
1: Explorer. We cruised in that thing super hard. So, what's up, dude? What have you been working on?
0: What have I been working on? Um. Oh, you know, it's a trip. I think quarantine started six months ago. Nah. Nine, seven. No, it would be, it was March, I think it was March 10th. So six months ago, right? Going into the 7th, yeah, 6th and some change now. Um, wild. Anyway, um, since the beginning of quarantine, I've, I started like, when I was really stressed out, well, this is kind of something I've been doing, like, always. When, once we got the Triton in 2000, um, Korg Triton, the OG version with the uh, floppy disk, um, I was up making hip-hop beats. Back in the day, um, I was in a hip-hop group called Secret Society. Um, I was just the producer, and I sang on a few songs. Um, for those of you who don't know, Choi had a rap name called The Pugilist which I always thought was a super sick name. <laughs> and I don't know why the, why the Puge didn't get on any of the tracks.
1: You want to know the honest truth? Yes. The Pugilist is such an aspiring rapper, but The Pugilist is a fucking chicken shit. <laughs> and I've, I've that's something I've been working on because, <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny, but it's the truth, man. I lived and held myself back with so much fear, you know, so, yeah.
0: I mean, I th- me too, dude. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, so anyway, what was my point? Oh, my point was I started making hip-hop beats way back in the day just because it was fun. And for years, I didn't do it. But over the past couple years, I've gotten really back into it. And so during quarantine, um, like from the beginning of it to like right now, I probably made like 50 beats and um you know it's just it's like a meditation it's like I'm not really like putting in work on it you know it's just like I'm I'm just going with what sounds good and like make a little loop and a lot of time I'm doing like making little loops like on um my old loop pedal because it sounds all grimy it's only 12 bits and uh and then you know make a little beat um on battery or something like that and then add a few little things and it's done. It's not like some like I actually try and get it done in like less than two hours.
1: But that is not only what makes beats so fun, but I think yeah. that's the real essence of beat making. I'm not saying everybody does or should do it that way, but isn't the beauty of beat making, wouldn't you agree that for some reason for people like us, it it's something we can do with less pressure. It's something we can do with like less scrutiny and it's just more free flowing and it's just fun to put together you know what I mean? Because of that. Totally. Because if you're, you know, it's so easy when you're working on something serious like a song, like every single thing be starts to become way more scrutinized. You got you start stopping takes because of unperceivable details to anyone else. You know what I mean? And and I feel like when I'm making beats, working on beats, for some reason, I'm able to just Push all that to the side and just be like, it doesn't matter. It's just a loop. It's just a beat. You know what I mean? If it sounds clean, if it doesn't sound messed up, if I I didn't play it too crappy, then it works.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. It's one of those things that like when I'm doing my own solo stuff or really any like project that is going to come out, I would say, that other people are going to hear, that strangers are going to hear. I tend to really, and I think probably a lot of musicians do this too, I tend to get really in the weeds about the minutia. Um, just the other day, I was working on a solo track, was just like last Friday, and it felt like I blinked and five hours went by, and I was just like EQing this little part, <laughs> and it was so crazy, man. I, I got it, so man. annoyed with myself. I was like, "Dude, what did you just do?" Like, what? And 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 the funny thing is, like, when I listened to the little the bounce I made of it the next day, because so I always like to give it like a day before I listen. I, I was listening on a Bluetooth speaker, and you couldn't even tell. Like, yeah. what, what I spent all those hours of my life that I will never get back made zero difference. Oh yeah. And so, the thing with making beats is like. You, d- I don't get into that personal editor mode. Exactly. I just go: Does this sound cool? Right on. Does it not sound cool? Move on. You know. Exactly. And so that that's kind of been my little like meditation during um, during quarantine for sure. But then since then too, like sometimes I just needed, um, you know, like a day, just some time to make music and not have an idea of like what it's gonna go to right you know and i think the the beats really
1: serve that purpose yeah i mean they're they're wonderful wonderful for that because um like we were just saying it's music without the pressure because there's something that happens when you start getting into songwriting on a larger scale with involving like multiple live instruments um i'm not saying it's some kind of higher form or, or anything like that. It's just, it requires so much discipline as a foundation in performance that you kind of have to change how much you're analyzing and change the standard of what's acceptable, you know, and, um, to break free from that and be able to just make music that's, as Matt was saying, like simple and, and fun and kind of freeing of all those, I don't know how to articulate it. I feel like the more difficult something is, the more places it gives your insecurities to kind of sit down and like make a space for themselves. And I feel like beat making is less demanding, especially without having live drumming performance. Aside from the performance, literally uh, anybody who records. Whether at home or professionally, you understand what a what a gigantic thing recording drums is. It's it's a almost a sub discipline of recording engineering in and of itself. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So to just be able to like use drum samples, tap stuff out, do it MIDI, however you're you're putting it together, it's just freaking sweet, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, I also think the way your musical brain is is you've always made really fucking awesome beats because you're able to think Thanks, uh, your your ability to I guess wrap your mind around the conception of the song from rhythm all the way to a vocal melody tying it together and the way you've been able to like curate all that and how you approach that is definitely been solidified into this very like cohesive uh, unique trademark style of yours you know so, yeah I appreciate that even in your solo record, I hear the beat making mind employed.
0: Oh yeah, totally. yeah, you know yeah that one was that um, 2019 was really um, hmm it's so loop based yeah. like it's really loop based the writing of it and I I feel like that's that's a tendency. I don't necessarily dislike that, but yeah, I, I see how you could, how you could draw that comparison for sure. Because I think a lot of the time, just when you're by yourself, like my, my, um, tendency is to like lay something down that I can play something else over or sing something else over. So in a lot of the time, and maybe this isn't a good habit, but a lot of the time I just write, you know, like a, an A section and then I'll end up like layering that whole section before I write a B section, and sometimes that limits my ability to think outside of the A section. Because you know how it is, dude. When you're when you're recording in Pro Tools, if you listen to something, if you listen to something looped like a hundred times, like you're dust. Oh, you that's know, a you, form you of my purgatory. Like, oh,
1: it's my. I've I've yeah. literally forbid myself from hitting Shift Command L. On something, because not only for the insanity of my brain, because of when I do that and I'm tracking myself and I'm trying to play a part over and over, nothing good happens yeah. for me there. Nothing good happens for me. I have to put myself through the pain of hitting Command Spacebar and trying to get it because something happens when I know that it's gonna loop around. Like other uh, people get good stuff out of it, but me.
0: So it, you're saying you don't like to loop, loop record?
1: Maybe I ruined myself. Maybe I had a capacity for loop recording my brain, and I overloaded it, and it's just fried for good now. Because now, when I hear things on loop, even mixing for frequency, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. Oh, I'm gating a tom. I'm cleaning it up. Doom, 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 doom on loop. Mm-hmm. I can only take it in like 15, 20 seconds. That's, a, that's
0: audio freaking Guantanamo, dude. It is. That's that's what they do to you in Guantanamo. <laughs> <laughs> they they probably just bla- They probably have like huge speakers, and you're like in a, a room that doesn't have any flat floors. It's like all slanted floors with like freezing cold water at the bottom of the floor, and they're just pumping in the loudest setting of someone editing crappily played drums.
1: Yeah, or poorly just, recorded drums. Or, or poorly, re-
0: yeah, yeah, just on a loop. Just like someone messing with a high pass filter for like hours and hours and hours of this, like, high rack tom that sounds like
1: crap. Or paying, recording one of those drummers who hits really hard, but also has their cymbals so close to the drums that, you know, there's just nothing you can do. But anyway, now we went yeah. out off into the weeds of uh, yes, engineering we purgatory, but that's definitely one of them next to my etern- driving on an eternal rumble strip, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, I know yeah so I know you in the rumble strip
1: I mean, it just it's just brutal,
0: especially it, in the bus oh. when you're asleep. anyone be, being woken up by the rumble strip because you just know like I'm either dead in a few seconds for sure or or I'm just maimed, yeah. you know and then you know like ten seconds of being like clenched up in terror yeah. and then you're like, oh,
1: I'm not dead yeah we've we've had too many bad drivers. Honestly,
0: yeah, we've had a lot because we always had the cheapest driver, right? yeah, and
1: that's what you get. Yeah, I mean, tour buses are expensive, you know, and RX always needed a budget, so we were going to end up with uh, those questionable guys that uh, yeah, may make it through the whole tour, oftentimes didn't, may not want
0: to make it through the whole tour, may, <laughs> may not want to make it through their own life. Shout out Harold.
1: Uh, there was that one driver who. Left the tour because we switched buses, but remember he blessed us with the CD, Zat U Santa Claus. Oh, for
0: sure. I love that, dude. I feel like I still have that CD somewhere. I don't have a CD player, but I think I think I have Zat U Santa Claus. Dude, it might be on Spotify.
1: That guy could have been industrious enough to do that. You know? But he was bonafide. He was like, hammered while he was fide, driving all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, basically. He was drinking whiskey and driving. Well, we for switched, sure
1: we switched buses in in Houston after we played our yep. house live. Yep, and I remember it happened after the show. Mm-hmm. So we come down after we get off stage, and the other bus we're switching to is already there. We walk in, we're getting our stuff, moving into the new bus, and he's hammered. He is completely hammered. I mean, he wasn't at the he hotel sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember asking, I'm like, be honest with me, dude. You've been drinking. Like, you can't drive he's like, oh, don't you worry about me. I'm just going to drive an hour outside of the town, pull over at a truck stop and sleep. I'm like, you're going to drive an hour this hammered? I'm like, what can you do, dude? Yep.
0: He didn't pull over. He just kept driving. If you're willing to drive an hour that hammed, he's probably going to just keep on drinking. You know? Oh, I man. mean, honestly, dude, probably a lot of these guys were doing that. That's a rough job, by the way. That's a really that is such job. a tough job, being yeah. a trucker or a <clears throat> tour bus driver, especially like imagine these drivers on warp tour and stuff, oh, doing these crazy tours where you got to be there at 8 in the morning. And yeah. so no matter what, you get off stage, and then this guy's just driving every single night, 10, 12 hours, no matter what. And that's all you do.
1: You just drive and sleep. Yeah, it's true, man. And literally like already have a tough job, and then it's just, Taken away from you. It's vanished. Yeah. it's like no work, you know, so. Yeah. Like many other people and, you know, my heart goes out to all of them.
0: Oh, yeah, with the Rona, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, no touring yeah. for
1: God knows how long. Well, it was uh, part of the reason you and I are sitting here right now. <laughs> there you go. You know? So you've been making a lot of beats. <clears throat> been making beats.
0: Um uh I put out a single of that. I'm gonna put out an EP of it. It's under Geese uh, but in order to not be listed with the other Geese people on uh Spotify, it's dot dot g e e z dot dot mm really hard to find. <laughs> Didn't think of that in advance, but it's all good. um yeah, but besides that, just been working on another solo record. Um, got everything done except for some of the vocals and, uh, you know, that dinosaur album and, um, what else? That's about it. Yeah.
1: Are you good at tracking yourself at vocals now? Yeah. Are you good at not getting too far into your own head and having those days where you're like, do you feel like you've done it long enough and just enough now to have a that trust where you're like that was good enough. I'm ready to go and you just move on. With vocals? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like I so I know that my tendency will be to nitpick everything and so what I do is I set um I set a limit on how many passes. Right. Just like how we used to do.
1: Yeah. Are you still comping vocals a lot of the time?
0: Yeah, I always comp vocals. Okay. So so I'll like warm up a bunch of times. If I have the parts written, I'll, I'll give it a, you know, I'll start recording and I'll a up and I'll be able to hear like when my voice is warm. Yeah. And then I'll do like three or four takes and that's it. And if I don't get it, I'll come back to it, uh, you know, mm-hmm. another day because I don't want to get into like punching in one little thing here and there. And, and I don't, oh. don't want to get into where I'm thinking about, each note so much that you take away from the life of the recording. And yeah. at this point, like, you know, uh, I have the mic and everything set up like exactly the way I want it to sound already. So I don't have to do much
1: afterwards. Are you mostly doing SM7?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much always SM7 into, um, modded, uh, chameleon labs, um, 7603 into no 7602 into, um, uh, the ryan baker 1176
1: shout out ryan baker shout out ryan baker that's a nice signal path yeah into the apollo yep yeah that's a nice signal path man yeah
0: it sounds nice ryan baker's 1176 man i'm
1: telling you he did a good job oh yeah he did it's a very thorough well thought out human being what else you been up to we were supposed to go on a hike yesterday. Yeah, no, days. No, we were oh, supposed to go two, two days, days ago. ago. Yeah. yeah, we Cucamonga. were going to go to Cucamonga Peak again, but because <clears throat> of the fires currently going on, um, causing some, not as bad as we were thinking it could be, but not good air uh, down here today.
0: Yeah, man, it's brutal.
1: I was very disappointed that we didn't get to go on the hike. I was really amped to go. Me too, buddy. Me too. Uh, that we got, was
0: fun. We, what was that, like a week ago, two weeks ago?
1: It was two weeks ago that we went.
0: Yeah, that was fun, man. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. It's too bad. But, shoot. Seems like, man,
1: feels like all of California is on a fire right now. It's wild. When you look at calfire.gov, it pretty much is. Yeah. <laughs> it's. Uh... I mean,
0: there's two huge ones down here, right? Yeah. And then there's, I don't even know how many big ones up north. Well,
1: it's not just California when you add Oregon in and what was going on in Washington like it was pretty much the whole west coast. Right. Right. Yeah, man. Gnarly. Every year. Yeah. So I'm I'm happy to take this stance for whoever's listening uh climate change deniers you're tripping right now. You're tripping. You're tripping. The the science and the data and the proof of evidence that we're all living through is uh got to be causing you some major cognitive dissonance because what you're seeing and what you're thinking are two very different things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think when people really think about it or, or, you know, just, I mean, I'm 40, so I can just say that growing up here, growing up in Southern California, I grew up in Seal Beach. It's such a palatable difference in in how the climate used to be when I was young. I mean, I remember we had a rainy season. Southern yeah. California had a rainy season, you know, in the 80s and 90s. I remember it raining so much when I was putting up uh, Halloween decorations with my mom. That's like one of my first memories is doing that and having it almost always be raining because my mom would take the time Oh, it's a rainy day. He can't go out and play after school. Let's set up the direction or the um, decorations. And I mean, dude, we don't. There's years where we don't even get rain, like all rain. You know what I mean? And then you, as a surfer, I notice it so much in the water. I notice it in the changes in the swells. You know, we're getting a lot more south southeast hurricane swells over the past 15 years. Stuff that we never used to get. We're getting south swells really, really late in the season, which means we're getting more of that um, subtropical weather of those systems coming up more and more. And you notice, like, the amount of humid weather we get now is, I mean, to me, it's palatable. To me, it's a noticeable difference just from
1: the last, you know, 30 years. Yeah, man, it's it's very different, but, um, you know, some people can't take it. (laughs) Some people can't accept that reality. So, Why do you think that is, man? Honestly, I I really, truly believe that there's a lot of people out there and they either apply this to specific things like their social or political views or they look at their whole life this way where essentially they don't understand that there are things happening that they don't experience. It's that simple. And... If they don't experience it, they may be willing to admit that they see it happening, but they can't admit that they really don't care and they don't actually realize it because that would require some empathy and compassion towards things that they don't normally apply them to by default, say people of their same socioeconomic class or skin color or political party or sub-genre of indie music or particular progressive, whatever it is, whoever you are, wherever you fall. I mean, I think that that it's just that sort of thinking. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I could see that. I wonder if there's also some element of not wanting to feel guilty. Hmm. You know,
1: like they would feel some responsibility that they hadn't done something and they were contributing to, to uh.
0: Y- yeah. Or, or from just like a a generalized guilt as like i'm a human i'm part of this yeah you know what i mean like I, i'm because of progress and what we're doing this has resulted people would rather not even feel that association the guilt by association you know
1: that's very forgiving towards uh and very compassionate if that's the case with some of these like Uh, Fossil fuel executives and stuff like that. Oh well,
0: those fools—they don't care. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's some people that just don't care. It's it's that American capitalist ideal of if you're making money, then all is
1: forgiven. You know. Yeah. And so those people. You mean the civilian then, just the average?
0: Yeah, I just mean the average person. Yeah. Yeah. Not not necessarily people who have a dog in the race. Just just someone who's you know just uh, the average person who just doesn't. Yeah, want to believe it's happening or doesn't believe it then, for whatever reason. Yeah,
1: I totally agree with you, actually. I think what I said and what you said oftentimes exist together in different ratios too, you know? Yeah. But I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think there's definitely something to that because there's a lot of people that are like, I put stuff in the recycling bin. I mean, I just want to drive this Hummer. Or this gas guzzling SUV or whatever, or my big lifted truck. It's like, I'm not judging you. I'm for real. I, I, I get it. Like, they're like, I, I do this or that much. Like, how much more when all this stuff is happening is my enjoyment of something, you know, contributing Going to into, effect? Yeah. And yeah. they don't want that guilt put on them, you know? Yeah, right. It's the pebble in the ocean. Thing. Right, right. Yeah. And then, but you have the, the zealots out there who are willing to yell at you if they see you contributing that pebble still, right. you know, which. Oftentimes, a lot of these arguments are happening or these the breakdown of communication is happening is when, when people are just reacting to one particular person's uh, way of approaching them, you know, when they don't see eye to eye on something. Yeah, So. for sure. Yeah, and it's not that they disagree that much. It's just that their particular interaction put a gigantic divide and or a conflict between them, you know what I mean?
0: Totally, and... A lot of the time, when there's a disagreement um, over any sort of ideology, it's that you can't hear it from a certain kind of person. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. It's like in a relationship. You know, there are certain things you just can't hear from your wife. Right. Like, or, or I don't mean can't hear. I mean, it won't sink in, or vice versa. There are certain things you can't say to her that her friend could say to her. Right. You know that if you say it to her, she'll, she'll be bummed. Or she, it just, it's not going to sink in. Whereas, right. you know, her parents or her best friend could say the exact same thing and it will actually resonate with her. It's the same way with people arguing over different political ideologies or whatever. There's just like this, you know, this liberal bleeding heart, you know, dum dumb is the last person who's going to tell me what to do. Exactly. Like, I'm not listening to any of this logic Yeah. and, and vice versa. You know, someone who's, you know, super far left, like hearing something rational from someone who's on the right.
1: They don't want to hear it. You know, they can't hear it. I mean, it happens. It's always happened. Um, I can't think of a time or a place where humans existed where that hasn't happened. But in our country right now, it's... Shit's popping off, yo.
0: Oh, no doubt. It's... It's, Everything's so divided, and I think it really, maybe more than has been recognized really centers around this like destabilization of information, the, the destabilization of, um, just like journalism, like the lack of respect for like real journalism, the lack of, uh, trust in any kind of journalism. And, um, and also just the dissemination of information is so just chaotic, you know, so that, You can find some sort of wacky article on any random thing that you believe. Like, it's so easy to go and find confirmation for your bias. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And it's also so easy to disprove something that may be completely legit. It's true. You know, because of, like, someone's, like, shoddy journalistic effort or because of just the amount of information that's available. It's so most, I mean, most people just, they want something they can trust and they just want that one thing. They don't want to go and read everything. When the fact, the fact now is that if you really want the truth, you need to read something written by both, let's say a political thing. You have to read both sides of the spectrum
1: and then read into that. Yeah. And
0: be like, okay, here are some threads of truth because they're in both things So it's probably like this. And that is so difficult for the average person to do because it takes so much time.
1: Well, dude, you're so right. But you're also, my dog, telling people to read more in the year 2020. I know. know. (laughs) Which I think is a tough sell, even though I agree with you.
0: Dude, (laughs) uh... when you were talking about zines and stuff, I was thinking that exact thing. I was thinking about how like, the average kid was just like, Sitting in their room, reading magazines, yeah. reading like these little zines, reading, yeah. you know, like reading, just reading, like actually reading. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's obviously, people do reading now. People are reading on Twitter and people are reading, you know, the Facebook headlines. But that's so different reading. because your your line of concentration or your breadth of concentration is so short you're just reading this little blurb and then boom onto the next thing and your brain is just bouncing yeah. all around. You don't have any time to like actually digest a whole idea and like right. run it through your feelings and mull it over and uh, then, you know, come to like some sort of
1: um, decision on it, you know? Well, dude, well, we're fully like, we used to walk 12 miles to, to school in the snow. Now, but, yeah. Like, um, you know, back in the day, Reading comprehension was a thing, a subject, a discipline. Yeah, man. Meaning you can learn how to read, but you also need to learn how to comprehend yeah. what you're reading. For sure. You know? And obviously- There's you know, a way to measure intelligence. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it still is. The absurdity right?
1: of of how funny that sounds in this day and age, you know, because- Admittedly, even I, I participate in things like Twitter, which are the downfall of attention span and the downfall of, you know, I guess, focus and attention and reading comprehension because I can't think of any other thing that has further propelled, resonated with, and kind of been a side piece to the whole tagline, headline informative era where literally sure. people are forming opinions that they're willing to go fight with people on the street for by reading headlines and tweets and taglines and just yep. the the and if if we actually employ what Matt's talking about which is something that I also try to employ and you read these articles you often see How ridiculously exaggerated the headlines are compared to the actual facts that they're trying to make an actual story out of, Mm -hmm. which are becoming, I mean, most of these, a lot of these articles out there that most people, the mainstream are feeding off of are like hamburger helper, bro. You're just taking like little bits of like cheap ground beef of actual information and then just throwing, you know, a bunch of powdered sauce packet and noodles at it. To finish the dumb metaphor
0: yeah because they got to compete yeah they got to compete with all the other little
1: spoonfuls yeah and literally they're driven by ad revenues and they won't get the ad revenue if they don't get like the traffic and right. so that thusly is the cycle which i'm sure a lot of people have been like yeah 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 we hear about that all the time blah 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 these guys are explaining the parts of it but you know for people like matt and i it's irritating as fuck
0: I think that's a big reason why like podcasts have gotten so popular that and the fact that like everyone's at home or everyone was at home. A lot of people have gone back to work, but if you're a musician, you're at home. Um, Because I think people want to hear like long form stuff again, you know, and like they want to hear people work out ideas um, in real time or not in real time, but you know what I mean? As the ideas are being worked out, um, Because it's like the natural pendulum swing to this little, like, little mini bites, mini bites information world, you know? Yeah. Sadly, I think the average person is going with the mini bites.
1: For sure. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. Especially these sort of conversational form podcasts where you have to have an interest in the subject and or the people to really, like, be into it. You know what I mean? Sure. To, 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 I guess have a bias enough to understand that everything these people are talking about, which has already been discussed on numerous podcasts ad nauseum, like has a context as to why the hell you'd want to listen to these people talk about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I also think to, you know, to speak to what you were saying, um, that is why the long form conversational podcast is getting more popular too, because it doesn't have to be something informative about, the outside world, it can just be informative about who we are, how we interact, you know? Because I can think of a lot of people, well-known or not, who back in the day or even now, I would love to just eavesdrop on a conversation that they had, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just to see what they discuss just amongst themselves, you know what I mean? Which is, yeah. that's why I've been really enjoying watching sports without any uh, crowds there. I hear so much more of what players are saying to each other.
0: Yeah, I like and.
1: It. It's awesome. And I know a lot of people complain because, and I get it, like if you're used to a certain experience, but for me, you know, and I know you're the same way. We love the mic'd ups and now we get like mic'd up the whole game, you know? Yeah, totally. These, these athletes, they don't get to just change how they interact on the pitch or the court or the field or whatever. Yeah. They're doing what they always do and they're just like, oh shit, people can hear that.
0: Yeah, I've been saying for days that some network should do a thing where it's like a subscription right like you pay <clears throat> yeah like HBO or something yeah where're like it's just mics on the court like you just hear yeah everything that everyone's saying to each other yeah and you hear the thing and I <laughs> I don't think obviously they're never going to do that because I don't think the players would want that Hell no. because the players you know they uh, they have an image to uphold you know they have Yeah. Uh, Contractual obligations, you know, and certain guys, you know, like KG back in the day or something like if he would probably get dropped if everyone could hear the stuff he's saying to an opponent, you know what I mean? But as like a sport, as a basketball junkie, I,
1: I mean, it would be amazing. I would love it. Yeah, it's super, super entertaining, dude. I would love it.
0: You'd really get to hear the people's personality. I mean, you see it now, you know, someone like Pat Beverly, whatever you can tell. But it would be cool to, you know, you'd learn a little more about their sense of humor or just,
1: you know what I mean? It'd be cool. I I love hearing all that stuff. I love hearing like, you've been trying to go right on me all day, dog. You know you ain't going to go right on me. (laughs) You better just change it up. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff I love hearing. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, um, do you only go to the studio to work on music or do you have stuff at home still? Even like a guitar that you pick up and just like mess around with?
0: Um, I have, no, I have like a little, nah, not really a setup, but I have like a MIDI controller, um, a little interface and like an SM58 and a guitar at home.
1: Is there, do you actually use it days you feel like just staying home, not going to the studio? No, because
0: most of the time, like my normal routine is like, I'm going to get up and run, take a shower, eat some food, go to the studio. I try and go to the studio five days a week. And I, I don't know... I think it stems from back in the day, from like when... You know, like... Um, like back in the day, staying... You know, like doing the band thing where you're like staying at your girlfriend's house. You know, yeah. you're when you're not on tour. Staying yeah. at your girlfriend's house. And like, I always one of my rules was like I had to be gone before she got home from work. Like I had to leave because I didn't want her to come back and see me like playing video games <laughs> yeah. or doing whatever, even though like I have an excuse, like I have a job, I'm just not on tour right now. Like yeah, it's yeah. just a bad look. Like you don't Shit. want your girlfriend to come home from, she, you know, like at that time the, the woman I'm thinking of, you know, she was a server, her come home, she's been like working, dealing with like a bunch of, you know, douchebags all day, giving her crap and then i'm just chilling doing absolutely nothing have <laughs> only been awake for like 3 hours or whatever yeah so i, I feel like i still kind of have that in me so after if i'm home for too long i just start feeling like i i need to go you know it's weird and uh, part of it maybe it's i just don't want to be in the house but yeah to anyway to answer your question i i very rarely stay home and make some stuff usually i'll record some ideas like when Melissa goes to sleep or something or, you know, later on, or sometimes I'll get like um, uh, some sort of collaboration with somebody and I'll just, I'll just work on a few little ideas from, from the house.
1: When, when did that shift, man? Because it's like, I'm the same way I have the same anxieties and wanting to like be productive and do stuff. But there were so many years where we felt so down to just chill and not do much all day. It's like, when did that, When does that switch, you know? I guess when you start to, like, realize more and the world is not such a simple place and you start to understand time and how quickly it moves. I think that's what moved me towards that.
0: But I don't think... I don't... I mean, I think our life... Life is a lot different when... Especially back in the day when we were touring at least six months a year.
1: Yeah, just nonstop. And,
0: And then you're doing little nugs, too. So it's like, a lot of the time, it's like a three to six week nug and then you're only home for like a month at most so the first 10 days two weeks you're just finally getting settled back in the first week you're doing nothing yeah you know like you don't want to do shit you don't want to go out and see shows you don't want to smell like stale beer in a venue if your friends are coming to town you'll begrudgingly go (laughs) but you're not gonna want to go you know yeah that's um so I think that's part of it, but, you know, back in those days, like, still the only thing I wanted to do, even when I was at home, i just get in my mom's garage and record. You know, yeah. that's pretty much all I wanted to do, Yeah. you know? That and we were good. practicing so much, too. We practiced almost every day. We had everything to prove.
1: So, yeah.
0: I definitely did a lot of chilling as well.
1: I mean, we're lucky just because our form of doing something was so enjoyable to us, you know. For sure. But um it took me a while to get to that point where I could just relax and enjoy making music again, and I've had to do that multiple times. At first in our what 20s, do you mean? well, because I had spent so much time practicing and doing structured music stuff when I was young, that by the time uh we were doing RX full swing, like I didn't want to make music by myself as much. It wasn't as fun. I had more fun playing with everybody and having all the instruments there to basically manifest these ideas I had that contained multiple instruments like immediately. You know what I mean? And it was always so unsatisfying to me then to only get to be able to record one or two parts or or the all the labor and skill it took to essentially record and you know layer all of them together, which for both of us, Took years to really get to that point where we were comfortable. I'm not even going to say master because you never can really master it, right? Mm-hmm. But to the point where you know it was just easy. We had the stuff and the spaces and the the knowledge to just be like, yeah, okay, just throw up a couple mics, play a drum part, do that kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a lot more to work through to get to that point where it was like yeah, I can just do this to do it just for fun, you know? I always had this, like you were mentioning earlier about being able to create without thinking about where it has to go, what it has to give you in return, what recognition it has to receive, what earnings it's going to make, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Or even just uh, how it's going to go over to an audience at a live show, which was like so colored my thinking and my creation for so long too, you know? Oh, yeah. And even that, at the end of the day, is maybe beneficial, but at the end of the day is still um, creating something with how other people will perceive it in mind, you know? And to those people who are able to say, like, I really don't care. I just make what I want to make 100% and they really mean that truthfully 100%, I truly envy you because I've only been able to capture that in moments. To If I'm being honest... I've only been able to have songs here or there, or parts, or certain things that truly embody that, where I meant that a hundred percent, because I haven't said that a lot. So much of the rest of the time in my creative life, I couldn't help but think about how is this gonna be for rocking out? How are people gonna think this is like? How are you know what I mean? Like that's just how deep rooted my insecurities are. I think
0: is that insecurity or is that trying to find the right place for your idea though
1: yeah i see your point because you kind of have
0: to do that for a band right yeah a lot of the time
1: the emotional motivation is what determines whether it's an insecurity or not because i feel like i mean this is just me just like riffing on this but how i feel is that somebody who goes i want this to be received well, because I want them to feel happy and I want them to be excited and stuff like that. I feel like that's a less insecure way. Whereas where way I was thinking a lot of time was like, well, what if it doesn't live up to this? What if it doesn't like make them, you know, like nod their heads hard enough? Like, what if it sounds too simple? What if it's, you know, yeah. sounds too similar to that? It's just like, so that was the emotion so often that I was coming with, which makes you. me think, yeah.
0: Like, like sculpting out of what not to do rather than out of what you want it to be.
1: Yeah, and I had to—I literally had to sit myself down at some point, like ten, eleven years ago, and be like, "Dude, you need to stop creating with what not to do in mind," you know? Yeah, dude. Because that's how we start when we're young, all of us, most of us, mm-hmm. quote unquote. What's not cool? You know what I mean? But I realized how that started to carry over, and I was like, "I don't, I don't want to create this way. It doesn't. It's not cool." Yeah. Yeah,
0: dude, I hear that for sure.
1: You know? I do, yeah. Like in in the 90s when we came up, especially in punk and indie music where people were kind of limited or the people that were limited with their abilities, like octaves on the guitar were so overused. For sure. And and that was like a rule I had. Well, who wasn't? So was I at some point, (laughs) you know? But even with my first... Even with that project, The Trust Foundation with Brian Moss you know jokingly he would laugh at it but i had this thing called the octave law where i'd be like we can't make we can't play octaves in any songs then octaves he broke
0: ended. that law on mastering the list just 2 years later
1: but see that was different because those were octaves moving in thirds so it was a harmony was double harmonies
0: all right so if it's harmony octaves it's okay
1: yes what i was talking about was people playing a chord progression and then basically playing the tonic octave, thusly over the whole, just like one octave oh, over sure. the whole progression, and you're just like...
0: That was a popular... So popular. In the I mean, rock steeze of the 90s.
1: Yeah, and then it, it was expanded on in pop punk where people would play a yep. simple riff, which was the same function as the octave, over the chord progression. Yeah. And that was a whole sound in and of itself. And I remember early in songwriting when we discovered that it's exciting because you can play one thing that's repetitive and then you have these interesting chord changes because you know the chord underneath the actual riff is changing you get different chords different harmonies blah 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 but yeah um so i was like getting back to how we got off on that like i needed to stop like creating out of what not to do and then that later kind of morphed into the rule that I had in the studio with people I was producing or working with where editing is not creating. Okay, we don't put forward ideas that are telling anybody what not to do. We're just trying to add, you know.
0: Yep. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I um I think maybe I've told you about this before, but it's two two things. One thing I feel like I don't remember what it was, but it's the dude from caribou said this thing on an interview that I heard one time that was awesome. He was talking about like listening to like loops and stuff mm-hmm. and he like he makes stuff really fast And like he does a thing where he tries not to listen more than like two or three times to something he just recorded and him. then he just puts another part down, puts another part down and then he worries about like shaving the stuff later, but he just goes so that he doesn't get stuck. In like this one idea, and then um, the other thing was how Dan Pothast does the the thing where he he'll he calls it the songwriter challenge, yeah. where he'll get another a friend, and the whole idea is you you block out your days like so you're gonna do like forty hour a week type shit like eight hours a day you got to block out leave an, so maybe nine hours leave an hour in there to take a break right? Do like Mm -hmm. four and four. Mm -hmm. And you have a friend who's doing this with you as well. And what you do is you set a target, like something unachievable, purposefully, something like five songs a day. And you're cutting out like three days to do this, or two days, like do like a weekend. And what you have to do is you have to write and record five songs per day. And it's not demos. The lyrics have to be finished lyrics. And it doesn't have to be a great mix. It doesn't have to be mixed and mastered, right? But all the parts need to be there. Yeah. All the parts, right? And what it does is, it's like, okay, I've got eight hours for five songs. I got an hour and a half per song, right? right? So what it does is, is it kills that internal editor. Like, you don't have time to be like, oh, do I want to make this amp simulator a little different? You know, like, oh, but maybe this snare drum should be like a little more high end. You know, you don't have time to do that. It's like, is this good enough? Okay, go. Right. And so you're focusing just on parts. And a lot of time it'll make you simplify things because you don't have time and you got to play it right. You know, Um, depending on your level of skill, of course. But and then lyrically, I found for me because I did this with him once that lyrically it really just made me commit to something that wasn't lame and then looking back on it like yeah yeah you know i mean you're throwing something at a wall with these you know you have an hour and a half like some of them were like whatever but but i still completed a ton of songs and and you never get five songs a day Right. You never get it. Like the most I got was two songs a day, but two songs a day, that's so much for me. That's huge. Like one song would be a lot for me. And I mean, when we did it together, I wrote six songs in three days. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, and I just, I really love that idea. And I wish that I could implement it more personally, but without that other person to like hold me accountable, it's hard to do.
1: Yeah. And it's just having that, uh, I guess that pretense of, you have to get a certain amount done that I love because you yeah. and me are deadline. Yeah, you and me are used to making music the opposite way, which is the deadline is when we say it is, even if we yeah. set it for ourselves, which we break. Mm-hmm. Because we everybody knows, especially when you're dealing with groups or other artists you're working with as well, um, even within your own band, deadlines they just oftentimes just don't more often than not just don't get met. But yeah. I really really dig that idea because. I know that for someone like me, all my hangups with my creations and my songwriting and stuff, that instantly just chops them away. It's literally like a high-pass fat high pass filter for the bullshit of everything that holds me back like that. and keeps me towards one song a month. or You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I experience these similar things, and when I'm making beats like we were talking about or I recorded a cover of this song for this other podcast I was on, And because the song was already written and the pretense of this podcast was choosing a song that's your most disliked song, discussing it and covering it, it did that same Mm. thing where it took that pressure away and I didn't even have to write anything, but I was just re-recording it, adding parts, changing the song, like changing the chords and stuff. But the point is, is that even though that was a different thing I was doing, it still gave me that same benefit of being like, it doesn't matter. Like, Don't get caught up in these ridiculous details holding yourself to some standard and redoing things that will be totally unnoticeable to other people. It's about the concept. It's about that flow of consciousness and trusting yourself again, because I don't know, I don't know where I went off the rails in the past few years, but it's gotten bad for me again, where when I'm writing stuff, I don't like it the next day I'll record bits. I don't like it. I'm in this like bad, bad loop right now that I'm trying to break myself out of where I don't really have a positive creative relationship with myself again right now. Yeah. So those it's things were really that. good. No, it's cool, man. It's like, you've been through it. We all been oh, through yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. And just even having this conversation and talking about the songwriter challenge from Dan Podest, lovely man. Shout out to Dan. Shout out Dan P. Um, reminds me of, I guess just mentalities and, Things to do to kind of combat that because at the end of the day, it's just egocentric bullshit that's holding myself back because it doesn't matter. I I should create, I should be joyful that I have the knowledge and the skill to create. I should enjoy it again. Yeah. Like what I'm doing is not important. I'm not an important person. It's just, (laughs) I should make it for myself because it doesn't matter, you know, and I can say that to you now. And it's so easy for me to go, yes, this is real. I really feel this way. But bro, get me in front of the mic or get me getting takes of something and that just goes all out the window and I become this neurotic mess again.
0: <laughs> Yeah, man. You know, we're less than a grain of sand. You know? It's know. nice to think... For me, personally, I don't think of that as like a way... I don't mean that I don't feel like I have value or the people I love don't have value, but Agreed. what I mean is like in the vast scope of the universe, like it's... It's not, my existence is not even a blink of an eye. It's not even that. It's not even a grain of sand in the vast universe or whatever. And sometimes when you get in your head and everything seems huge like that, sometimes that helps me to remember. I'll be like, dude, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, just put it down. It doesn't matter. And just roll with it and then get out. Like record something. And then don't listen to that again, right? You know, because that's a problem. If if you listen to it so much that then you hate it, and oh, then yeah. it's always going to remind you of that like inability to find the thing, especially if you started with something that you really loved, and then it just didn't become this awesome song totally. that you thought it should have. Totally, um, one, dude. One one thing I was thinking about when you were saying that is one thing that I've really um, when I run into that kind of writer's block and i still don't know what to do with with like wor- like writing lyric writers block that's just so hard for me sometimes but um with music one thing that i found is to like force yourself to learn like a bunch of other people's songs that's what i've like, been doing yeah. you know like it really works especially something that's like something that's like really not similar like something that isn't you're not influenced by at all straight up you know what i mean yep. um and because then you'll start getting these weird melodic things to learn and you are like whoa that's weird you know why do they do that or totally. chord progressions or something and um i find that you'll find something in every song that it will like modify whatever idea you had and and help to break out of it you know
1: yeah, and that's something you and I have not only discussed But employed together in our band over the years, you know, for sure So, you know, those, those bridges with chord progressions from Beatles songs That one part or intro that's just ripping off a No Knife part we really loved And then a whole bunch of Fugazi-influenced stuff that we put everywhere, you know and yeah. Fugazi for days yeah, I mean what you're saying is not only a good reminder for me. I think it's a good suggestion for everybody no matter what level you're at. Um to kind of work through lately I've been going through Zeppelin again. I've been feeling stale on the guitar. I was playing a lot of synth, I was doing a lot of beat making and other stuff and man, just even going through songs that no one ever needs to hear again like Black Dog, learning the solo, everything. <laughs> It's just fun, man. And it's been good exercise, warm-up for me, and just uh kind of reacquainting. A couple months ago I did Master of Puppets, just went through oh, all the stuff. Yeah. You know, just relearning all the songs. Just fun. And right, then, that's
0: an epic. That's a masterpiece.
1: Well, when you learn it and you run through the record again, you can also feel kind of like the herky jerky edits or parts where songs you're just like, hmm. This transitions kind of weird or whatever, whether it was unnatural or. I think they just, I think
0: Lars just isn't a great drummer. I think that's probably. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, some of those, some of that stuff, cause like that's tape. It's on tape. Yeah. 1985. Yeah. You know, like they couldn't do much as far as chopping stuff up.
1: But I got to say the remaster sounds pretty, pretty damn good. Sounds good. Right? good.
0: Yeah. yeah. And they didn't change it too much. I like that. I just, Orion was was my shit back in the day. Love that song. All the Cliff Burton songs.
1: I think Orion is still one of the strongest on the whole record. Oh, most definitely. Personally. Just like the main riff, the breakdown, is just (laughs) so epic.
0: It's epic. There's no better word to describe that as epic. It truly is. Has so much cool little, like, well, that whole album has so much cool little, like, classical-inspired stuff.
1: Mm. yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. It's just we- weird to feel the Billie Jean vibes at the beginning of Orion, too, The <laughs> brr, the bass synth at the beginning mm-hmm. and stuff. It's like, you know? Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was just accidental or if they were actually trying to, like, touch on some pop pop nerve by...
0: Yeah, Indiana. I don't know. But I think they... Metallica always... I mean, Metallica always had one ear to, like, what what was happening. Right. You know, like they, they were very cognizant, especially, and partially, I think it's just because Lars was never like a shredder. <laughs> they, they, they kept it like, we want this to be like danceable. You know, we don't want yeah. it to get so tech that people like can't figure out like the rhythm, you know what I mean? Like how Slayer or Megadeth can get at times. That's true. You know, Metallica had way more, not four on the floor, but way more solid, like, like, two and four grooves.
1: You they know? had the simplest grooves out of all of them, for sure. Yeah, yeah, simpler
0: yeah. drum parts, but stuff that's more, like, danceable, easier to, like, remember. Like, really hooky. You know, Very really hooky. hooky guitar parts. Yeah. Super hooky. Um, and it felt like, you know, they'd have just the perfect blend, especially, like, you know, between Ride the Lightning and and Justice for All, those three albums. Just such a good blend of, like, tech and hooks and you know danceable parts uh versus like you know flex parts it's awesome yeah love metallica the og metallica
1: have you been learning any stuff lately learning any songs people
0: yeah yeah um I what did I learn? I was learning some unknown mortal orchestra stuff because that dude Ruben is such an incredible guitar player. I so love sick. I love his voicings. He just uses weird chords. Like he uses a lot of sixth chords that like I barely ever use, and I'm really like embarrassingly low versed in sixth chord usage. Um, and he does it so well. And also like mainly. The, one of my favorite things is like the way he weaves vocal melodies into these chords. He, it's almost like Brad Knoll or Kurt Cobain in the way that they would do these weird, like not weird, but unorthodox chord progressions. Yeah. But you wouldn't notice because of the way the melody is weaved through it. Like it's weaved so nicely and so totally. in a catchy manner that you don't even notice like all those weird chord progressions on Nevermind. You know, like you don't even notice because. Kurt is singing, like, such a catchy, simpler melody that just works.
1: Amazing pop hooks over weird chord progressions, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, um, yeah, that stuff. And been messing around a little bit with uh, some, um, some like, strange tunings. I don't know, strange, I guess, kind of like 90s, like, Toe, you know, that band mm-hmm. Toe, like, tunings. Yeah. Like, um, Yvette Young from Covet sent me some of these weird tunings that she likes to use uh-huh. and I was trying to um, just like get out of my normal ass like zone and with these tunings it's like you're <laughs> learning to play guitar again it's so it's so discouraging at first but, but then cool. What know? is the tuning? Um, it's here let me show you I have them all written down Durp, 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 durp. Looking them all right up. One is like an F sharp. Um, she called them toe, like the band toe. Right, just toe tuning. And I've literally never heard of that
1: band, which is probably stupid. They're probably like mega. They're another one of those bands where people who are into them are very, very, very into them. Yeah, they're
0: probably super influential, and you know. All right, so one is F A C G B E. Oh my God, that one's wild. Except the that, that one's like a little more chill because the top three strings are, are the same. Are the same, yeah. so it, so you can kind of jump back to that when you feel like you're off course but i
1: mean the bottom string being up just a half step from e to f is thats wild yeah it's mentally it's wild for me yeah
0: yeah and then you know the d string is tuned down to c so it's yeah i don't know it's,
1: but that's why i'm just me on dude. my gu- on the guitar and that's why she is who she is on the guitar so
0: yeah she's incredible yeah. for sure um and another one's f-a-c-g-c-e um Another one is D A D F sharp A E.
1: Hmm. So um, I guess um uh kind of like a diminished dad gad. Yeah, that <laughs> one I've used before. That sounds fun. I anyone that repeats a string, I usually have a lot of fun with on the guitar. Yeah. So, that first one though, F A C G B E. Like I I can see how that would be cool, especially with the top three strings being the same. Yeah. Maybe I'll fuck with that one. Dude, it will humble you. <laughs> <I'm> a, <laughs> bro, playing guitar with you for the past 20 years has humbled me enough. Nah, bro. Yeah, nah. bro. Yeah, I'm saying that in all sincerity. So, But it's also the thing that has given me any boost in ability that I've had is, is playing with you too. So, but Same, uh,
0: dude. I can't come weak, dude. You'll slap that shit out of there.
1: <laughs> but uh, the FAC... GBE, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can already hear some things in my head, and I'm like, okay, this is a totally retraining your hand because there's an element to guitar playing where you rely on the muscle memory of your hand knowing the intervals and the shapes. I see it for people who play drop D. I see it for people who play standard. I see it for people who only play in dag you know? Mm -hmm. And now that you make me think about it, uh. It's the only way to break yourself out of that and expand your mind. Literally, not just on the guitar, but expand your mind. It's learning a new language, a new discipline. It's learning to walk on a new ground with the instrument.
0: Dude, it really is. It yeah. really is. It's, uh, Yeah, like I said, it kind of makes you feel like you're learning guitar again, dude. And then um, I've been trying to, to learn a little more like hybrid picking stuff because that's something like I never... Mm. really did and like I don't know why I never did because like I like to finger pick I'm not good at it but like the hybrid picking thing is really cool because it's awesome you know you can just do a lot of a lot of neat stuff you know obviously like sometimes like I've been going down Guthrie Govon Mm. YouTube like library going deep that guy's that guy's the best guitar player on earth I'm just gonna say it he is he's the best guitar player
1: more than um what's his name Michiko
0: yes He smokes that guy. Really? Ichiko is, Ichika is sick. Oh, it's Ichika. Yeah, he's sick, no doubt. He is. But Guthrie is complete, dude. Guthrie's like Kawhi Leonard of guitar. (laughs) He's got no weakness in his game.
1: (laughs) Does he have the same temperament?
0: He seems to. He's, you know, he's funnier than Kawhi. So he's like better than Kawhi, you know?
1: He just like, he plays something sick, just like Riff Man.
0: Yeah, Totally. (laughs) In his Rift mind man, he come probably to get does. your riffs. He's like British and he's so self-effacing. Yeah, in like yeah, the yeah. funniest British humor way. Maybe you know? I gotta
1: check more of his stuff out.
0: Bro, he will blow your mind. I mean, the thing is, is like he's like a lot of those fusion cats where they're so good, they're so technically talented. Like, um, you know, like a lot of uh Frank Zappa stuff that like they write kind of goofy songs. Yeah. Because they're so good. They're like, oh, let's mash all these different, you know, they yeah. don't, they just don't care. They're like, I'm just trying to do something that makes me stoked and is far out, you know, full yeah, Frank Zappa style. Exactly. And they do. And sometimes those songs, you're just like, like that, that melody's like, you know, it's just like kind of whatever, like that melody's kind of whatever or like. A lot know. of them. Yeah. But from a, just from an overall, like
1: the guy can play anything. He's incredible. Oh, I'll check more of his stuff out. Yeah. But that's definitely the thing that I think masked a lot of Zappa's genius, which is the the goofy element. Too
0: goofy. It's
1: too goofy. The vocals sometimes just got too goofy.
0: The vocals were very goofy. And it's
1: just like, it doesn't really showcase like the true virtuoso that him and his band all were.
0: Yeah. But I think, see, that's the thing is like, I don't think Frank was. Didn't care. No. He wasn't interested in like proving himself to like the general public. I think he just wanted to be respected and loved by his peers. And he totally is. He's like, Frank Zappa is probably one of the biggest like musicians bands, if not the biggest like musicians band ever. You know what I mean? For sure. As far as like respect and influence without ever having, you know, hit singles or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how he managed to be so established and famous. I mean, I I guess it speaks to the fact that I guess his virtuosity wasn't totally lost, but I mean... And he just
0: had all
1: these guys that played with him. That all became legends at their own instruments. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like these guys are oftentimes so big that you're like, oh, oh, he played in Zappa's band. Yeah. you're just like, oh, dude. So many of them got their start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shredding, bro. And you
0: can't forget Captain Beefheart. That was a Frank Zappa production. Way more. Trout mask replica.
1: (laughs) Way more influential than people realize, too. Like, pretty gnarly when you listen to Captain Beefheart, how cutting edge and pioneering it was, like, ahead of its time. Yeah. And borderline unlistenable. A lot of the the times, borderline unlistenable. But those moments where it kind of all hits, though, it's like, I don't know. That's how I feel about MoonDog a lot too. Where's oh, like I love MoonDog. MoonDog is sick, but I'm not like everybody else where like everything he did was sick. To me it's about for, for me it's about those moments, those songs where every all cuz it's such like, you know, it encapsulates so much that, you know. But that's just me. I'm yeah. weird, you know.
0: Hey man. I would think most people would agree with you. MoonDog's just really he's just really prolific. I think any most prolific musicians, they're going to have some shit you don't like. That's just part of it. You know what yeah, I mean? That's, that's part of it. It's like if you're going to, because to be that prolific, it's not like you just are so much better as a musician than other people. It's just that you're choosing to release a lot more than a lot exactly of people. A lot it. of people make so, you know, I'd say, I don't know, man. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, but no, you're I, right. I think a lot of people probably only release about 10% of the music they make, 20%. No, you're at the so most, right, bro. And know. and
1: that bravery to accept that you're going to put out stuff that people don't like is huge because no matter what you're going to put out, anybody's going to put out s- stuff that people don't like. Nobody is exempt. No, you know, it's yeah. like you're faced with it more the larger you get.
0: Yeah, you he know? didn't care. He's walking around New York dressed as a Viking.
1: Yeah, Exactly. And that's what I need to remind myself when I'm being so precious about my own insecurities, which is, I need to be comfortable with that. No matter how hard I try, it doesn't matter. Just needs to get out there and I just need to put it out. We just need to get that. I'm going to try and evoke more of that Zappa, you know?
0: Evoke that Zappa, man. And
1: I need to do it outside of... Just specific realms of heavy music, like when I do Peaced Out, where I'm really able to employ that. I don't care. Like, I feel confident in this, and this is what it is, you know? It just doesn't carry over into a lot of other things for me, and it should.
0: Carry that shit over. I know, dude, but. Grab you know, that suitcase.
1: Creative pursuits and our ego and our pride and reckoning all those. It's tough, bro. We're 40. Fuck it, right? Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, that's a good place to end it, like evoking the fuck it. You Evoke know? the fuck it. Because sitting with you in particular here now, it's true, man. Fuck it.
0: Just do it. Not Nike, though. <laughs> fuck them. And their child slave factories.
1: Well, I'm going to work on the whole not giving a fuck thing because... I'm able to do it in certain aspects, but the places I really need to utilize it, I've been uh, lacking. Thanks for reminding me of that. My pleasure, man. You bet. Cheers, bro. Cheers.